Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hi, you're listening to the Wall Street Oasis podcast, a podcast about breaking into the world of finance, along with interviews with those who have. I'm Alex Grodnick, and on today's show, we're lucky to be joined by Dennis Miller, not the comedian and Trump advocate, but entertainment executive and investor. Dennis has had a super successful career working and investing at the intersection of the media and technology industries. He just started teaching a class at UCLA called Venture Capital for Technology and Entertainment Businesses. So welcome, Dennis. Thank you. Yeah. How do you know I'm not voting for, voted for Trump and yeah. an entertainer? Uh, you could be, you could be both. Okay, we'll leave that alone. <laughs> we can, uh, we can answer that in some of the, in the end questions. Okay. So you've had this career where the first half of it was kind of started off working in entertainment and then the second half, uh, working on your venture capital investing. So that's what I'd like to structure this podcast of is talking about the first half and entertainment, and then we'll switch over to talking about the investing. So Let's just jump in. How did you get your start in your career? Uh, you went to Berkeley Law School. And, and, and so tell us about the beginning. Yeah, very circuitous path. I started uh, down here working for Manat Phelps, Rothenberg & Tunney was the name of the firm. At the time, it's changed since then. And they had a number of different departments, but tax department, entertainment department. They represented some big musicians and some big feature film people. And so I got a taste of it when I was down here, and this is in 1982 when I graduated. And I got the bug a little bit, had some friends that were in the business and were looked like they were doing fun, interesting things, a little more fun than doing tax law in the library at the law firm there. And my break was that my dad was in the clothing business, and he did television commercials for, you know, as one of the first kind of clothing uh, merchants out there to do TV, and he had an ad agency in uh, in the Valley on Ventura Boulevard, a company called Focus Media. And about a year into my law career, uh, th- I met this guy and thought he was quite entrepreneurial. And he said, "Why don't you come over here? We're having a lot more fun doing advertising and buying media." And I was not that happy practicing law, so I took the leap, and that was my intro to the television business. Okay, and. Then from there, what happened? You, how did you get to uh, to Turner? Uh, that was from advertising. I learned a lot about how broadcasters work, how media gets bought, you know, how the pricing uh, is determined, kind of the cost structure of the business. Met some fairly serious folks at high levels at the various networks, and then. From that, uh, I met an actress named Shelley Duvall. Her boyfriend at the time was the son of Alan Cranston, the senator. 
Uh, Shelley was uh, a character actress and had gotten uh, some funding from big cable operators to make very cool original programming for cable. And that was long before you see what you see today. And so she had a series on Showtime called Fairy Tale Theater, which were public domain fairy tales with big stars that she brought to that from all of her relationships. So I, that company was called Think Entertainment, sat on top of a Chinese restaurant on Ventura Boulevard, and we made shows principally for cable. And we were owned by large cable operators. Two and a half years into it, uh, I met some of those cable operators. They introduced me to Ted Turner, and Ted offered me an opportunity to run TNT in 1991. And that was a big step in my career, and I jumped and moved to Atlanta to run TNT. So what was that like meeting Ted? Uh, meeting Ted was very uh, intimidating. Uh, he was on quite a roll then. CNN had just gone through the whole Baghdad you know, uh, live correspondence there that put them on the map in a significant way. TNT had just launched with kind of the old movies from MGM. And so he was this larger than life, you know, fella in Atlanta, very strong personality. We met at the Four Seasons Hotel in New York, in LA. And I remember he asked me if I had had any uh, businesses that I'd been involved in that didn't work out. And I said, yeah, I had a small television production company myself uh, before Shelley Duvall that I had been working on that never really turned out to much. And I owed some money and had to pay everybody back. And surprisingly from that, he said, great, I love people who failed. And I was just so kind of comforting that he said that because he told me all the times that he had screwed up and things hadn't worked out. He said, but I'm glad you've had that experience. Why don't you come over here and run TNT? And I was like, wow, that was uh, unusual as a response. But uh, in 1991, I left and uh, moved to Atlanta. To Atlanta to run TNT. Exactly. Mm. And so then then what? How, how, how was that? A great ride. Uh, cable, original programming for cable, cable networks, everything. The wave was behind us in a big way. The... Uh, we could, really couldn't do much wrong. The growth in subs out there was happening. We started with like 35 million homes. We were in close to 60 or 70 million homes by the time I left there, which was largely just a function of more and more people getting cable and satellite at the time. We had an old movie library, and Ted had a genius idea to get to the rights of the NBA to put on TNT, and that took us from... You know, from Wherever we were, sub count wise, almost doubled our subs there because everybody wanted a national uh, NBA game on Tuesday and Friday night. So that became a fixture at TNT, and we were doing original movies, and we got some attention for some of the movies. We did westerns, we did historical pieces, and we did some controversial ones. We did the big film called Gettysburg, which got a lot of attention about the Civil War. Ted was a huge Civil War buff. And it was a great ride. It gave you a lot of autonomy. It was a great cheerleader when things were working. And I went back and forth between L.A. where our creative business was done to Atlanta where the cable network was run. But it was a very um, fun time. I was in my 30s and I felt, you know, on top of the world. Wow. I mean, this was the heyday. It was. It was as good as it gets. None of the talk about, you know, uh, cord cutting and all of that. There were no very few cords to cut right then. And people were just so enamored of all the offerings to go from three or four broadcast networks to, you know, 300 channels was a, you know, for the consumer was a just a remarkable experience. Right. And I'm almost 30. And I can't even imagine sitting across the table from Ted Turner and saying, here, why don't you come run one of my businesses? So... What were you thinking when this was happening? I was thinking I was very lucky. I thought that you know it was just a unique thing to go from 
a law to advertising to a character actress making you know these you know relatively had a relatively small production company to this big leap in my career and i uh, i just felt very you know fortunate i you know i felt like i had the right kind of mix of skills because i'd been a lawyer and had done business and had done you know creative work with shelley there and kind of understood how the business you know works by that time but it was a big risk on his part to have me come over there and uh, and i just remember thinking oh my god i got the best job um of a lifetime here and when that happened i was 34 you know, when i got the job so it was um, it was special and did you do a good job there? Uh, I think I did. You know, we uh, we ended up winning a number of ACE awards that were called at the time, and we won the Emmy for uh, Gettysburg when we made the film. We did another film called Heat Wave, which was about the Watts riots, which got a lot of attention, and that attention was what the cable network really wanted and needed to kind of stand out. We were able to get 20, at the time we were getting, uh, I think, 25 26 cents a sub and we ended up you know at 50 60 cents a sub um by the end of the time i was there i also got uh to oversee turner pictures which was the film library that mgm owned so all the remakes and restoration work and all of that came under my purview then we started making original features you know uh later on in the mix here so it was a pretty meteoric you know rise there and that set me up really in 95 to meet Mickey Shuloff, who was the head of Sony Corporation. And uh, they were at that time, Peter Goober and John Peters were leaving the organization. They had brought some new people in and uh, they were looking for a head of television at Sony. And so I'd had the cable experience, had the production legal experience, and it was probably my early 40s and just thought, okay, um, this could be another great leap. And so I left Turner uh, five years into it and came back to be executive vice president at Sony Pictures Entertainment to oversee the television group, you know, there. And that was a um, kind of a quantum leap in terms of size. We were making a lot of shows for the network. We had a syndication company. Uh, we had a very big library of Columbia Pictures and TriStar Pictures there that we distributed around the world and some very smart, you know, talented people there. So, again, I was kind of like, uh, I remember riding my bike with a friend in L.A. and I said, well, I'm either going to be out of work or I'm going to have a really huge job at Turner, excuse me, at Sony. And uh, the good news was they made me an offer I couldn't refuse to quote a famous movie and, uh, and jumped in 1996 to Sony. And how is that time there different from the from the time at Turner? That was in L.A. principally. I was right? in L.A. Uh, very different. It was very uh, corporate. You know, a lot of divisions, a lot of uh, executives in various capacities there that you could utilize. It was a big ship. Uh, it was much more dysfunctional in terms of the relationship between Japan and Hollywood. The Japanese. I think had felt that the experience with previous management had been less than satisfactory and they wanted to go a different way. And I think from that, there was always a mistrust between the electronics group and the content creation group. I think that even goes on to this day, you know, here. And, uh, and they went through a few management changes when I was there. Nobuyuki Day came in to the operation. Oga was gone. Uh, Mickey Shuloff left, and uh, I think throughout it, they really looked at the company as a bunch of, you know, kind of buccaneers out here in L.A. making too much money, um, making this content to feed their electronics division. And there had never been any real 
success with the exception of Apple and iTunes, you know, where for an electronic company to own the content had really, you know, proven to be a very effective strategy. So uh, I think they were, it was kind of a misguided thesis. Uh, they'd written a lot of checks to own these assets. And anytime you came to them with doing something significant or big, they would say no. Uh, they really didn't want to uh, to expand significantly and didn't. Uh, the only thing we did when I was there was Game Show Network, which we got started. So it wasn't very rewarding in terms of being able to launch new things. They did let the company expand internationally and make some investments in existing international networks. The most successful one was the Sony Entertainment Television in India. But apart from that, I'd say it was, you know, while well-paying, it was not as rewarding as the more entrepreneurial, you know, environment with Ted there. Right. And it sounds like some of the same issues that we're thinking about today with uh, using content to bolster other businesses, like with Amazon or with uh, what AT&T is trying to do now. So, I mean, same same issues, right? Uh, well, different in the sense that, I mean, those were, Sony never had a distribution platform, so to speak. They had the... Walkman, and then they lost out, obviously, to all the stuff that happened, you know, from Apple. But they didn't have, you know, satellite capability. They did do a lot of the work on DirecTV on the hardware side, but ended up not owning any part of the asset. So for them to uh, think that by, you know, for the Walkman to control a certain amount of music or content was going to drive it, um, didn't prove true. They really needed to own as much of the content as they could, be agnostic with all of the providers. And that would have been a better strategy, but it, you know, was not to be. And they, you know, they kind of lagged behind the other players who were adding, buying up cable networks, diversifying, integrating horizontally. And as a result, you still see it today. You know, Sony is one of the smaller, you know, kind of pure play content companies out here in the U.S. versus Disney and Universal and what you've seen, you know, from some of the bigger players. One day, I think that'll change. I think the Japanese will ultimately sell the asset. But for now, they're kind of content being custodians of, of the company. Sure. So then what? Uh, from Sony. It was Lionsgate, uh, right? Yes. I uh, met Frank Justra, who was a Canadian uh, financial uh, gentleman who'd done very well there. And he wanted to start a f uh, something from scratch, which sounded more fun and entrepreneurial and a little mm -hmm. crazy. And we spent some time together, and I jumped in like '98 to uh, to help him start Lionsgate. And we had he had a film executive, and then myself on the TV side. And uh, we had a French film library, a little animation company, but it was relatively small, a sub hundred million dollar company. But Frank was very uh, entrepreneurial, and uh, and you know knew the financial folks in Canada, you know, very well. And so we uh, we went public early. Uh, we you know struggled for you know quite a while just trying to get a little bit of of scale underneath us. Here it takes a lot of capital to be in this business, and uh, being a public entity, Canadian with relatively modest assets, we could never really get the stock price to an interesting level. Um, but I you know it was. It was fun giving it our best effort. The best thing I ever did there probably was hire Kevin Beggs, who's now the head of television at, at Lionsgate and has done a phenomenal job, you know, growing their business. They've got 60, 70 series on television today. And uh, but it was never we never got big enough to really be able to do the kind of expansion that we talked about. And, 
in the middle of it, in the late 90s, you recall everybody was in the tech madness phase. It was pre the bubble bursting. Stocks were valued at ridiculous prices. I had friends who were on paper worth gazillions of dollars, and I was getting a little jealous. And I was interested in how tech was going to impact the content business. And uh, Frank was getting tired of having a stock under two bucks. And um, we thought there was probably better you know, management and better financing. So when Frank decided he was going to depart, I said, okay, I'm, I'm interested in this other arena. And the question you're going to ask me, which is how did I shift from media to tech, is I had the bug. I was interested, had a lot of friends in that business. I was never somebody who thought I would be corporate you know, for the rest of my life. And I think the Sony experience and even the frustration of being subscale with Lionsgate had gotten to me where I said, okay, I'm ready to do something different. And I was at the right age and time, and I started hosting a series of breakfasts for uh, tech folks and media folks at the Four Seasons at 7.30 in the morning. And my first guest was Mark Cuban, who spoke right after he'd sold broadcast.com. And so uh, I asked 50 people to come, 12 showed up, typical <laughs> LA response, and they were a testament to all my, my you know prowess out there. And he was so engaging and he had made so much money from selling kind of a radio business basically to Yahoo that the buzz started spreading that these might be interesting breakfasts to come to. And over time, we got 20 people and then 25 and then the heads of agencies and the heads of studios and had some wonderful speakers who came in and talked, told their stories. And it was early days. This is still 99, 2000, you know, way, right. you know which seems like uh, eons ago. But that got picked up in the Wall Street Journal. Some people at Bear Stearns read about it. I got the call from Bear Stearns saying, would you be interested in joining as a partner in Constellation Ventures division of Bear Stearns? It was doing tech investing all before the bubble burst in, I think, March of 2000. And, uh, and I jumped. And, uh, and that really changed my career. Uh, I stayed here for a while, but then I moved to New York, which is where the headquarters of the business was. And there wasn't really much happening in L.A., and uh, and that was a that was a big leap. Were you afraid when you when you were like completely changed? I was not afraid as much as I was. You know, I was curious about how this thing worked. I didn't mm -hmm. know anything about it. What a term sheet was like. How you do early stage investing. How you evaluate early stage entrepreneurs. Uh, I think we all tend to gravitate. We all tend to gravitate toward our areas of expertise. So I looked at businesses that had kind of subscription components to them because I had uh, worked in that space in cable before. Uh, it was, you know, a daunting learning curve, and I didn't have the entrepreneurial network of folks, 25-year-olds who were, you know, changing the world. And then, much more importantly than any of that, the bubble burst. So I could have been John Doerr, but everyone went running for the hills. We had a lot of companies that were not going to make it. So instead of investing, it was closing down companies, which is never very fun. Mm -hmm. And uh, everyone looked at the tech bubble and just said, are you guys kidding me? This is nuts. How did this, how did we ever get so, so crazy? How did these valuations ever stand up? Well, they didn't, you know, and they came crashing down. That took a, kept a lot of money out of the marketplace. A lot of people and money drifted away. But it's a great time to invest because prices are cheap. Nobody can find money. If you've got it, you can strike a great deal. And I, as I said, moved to New York, stayed with it, and then started investing in businesses that I was somewhat familiar with. We had a couple of changes in the partnership uh, there that allowed me to have more responsibility. And then four or five of the investments I made you know, were very successful. So that 
you know, gave me renewed confidence that, hey, this was a good, good decision. Yeah, that gave you a track record. But Bear Stearns had the stomach to go buy some of these distressed assets when it really wasn't their core business? They they didn't run it that way. I mean, their core business was obviously fixed uh, fixed income, mm-hmm. trading, traditional banking, and obviously Ace Greenberg and his, you know, and Jimmy yeah. Kane and that whole group had built a kind of, you know, rebel with a cause in New York that was this scrappy investment bank different from the white shoe banks that were out there. But they didn't escape the bubble either, you know, bursting here. Uh, but they looked at this as a separate vehicle. They put up a third of the capital. The other two thirds were raised separately, and uh, they didn't. You know, this was this was a rounding error for them in terms of whether that you know the fund would work out or not. But I kind of got a sense: hey, they're not going to put in more money unless you know we we turn things around and recover from you know two thousand here. So. Uh, I invested in some cable networks in an online education company called K12 that we took public and then Capital IQ, which was sold to FactSet. And from that, um, you know, I was able to at least establish a modest, you know, reputation as somebody who wasn't stupid and at least could have got an idea about how to, where to put money to work. And, uh, and that's when I, uh, in 2005, met the guys who were starting Spark Capital, Todd Degris and Santo Politi and Bijan Sabat. And they were um, ret- kind of retired from where they, at an early age, from where they were. Todd had had two enormous wins with um, Qtera uh, and um, and Akamai at Battery, and he had taken a year or two off and uh, explored different you know passions. Santo had been at Charles River and Bankers Trust and done well. Bijan was with Steve Perlman at uh, at the, one of the first kind of uh, email on television businesses here and web TV. And uh, and also had worked um, at Microsoft and Apple, and uh, and so they kind of came together, and I was the fourth partner there, and I was the luddite of the group compared to their tech backgrounds, but they were interested in digital media, and to, to get into a venture firm from scratch is a really rare opportunity financially as well as just being there to shape kind of the initial you know plans of the company. So I leaped in 2005 went with my family and moved up to Boston and we started Spark. And was your success in Constellation and the idea of success in uh, in Spark was that from your operating experience is that how you were able to identify interesting companies? I don't think so much the operational experience it was you know it's helpful when you get into the muck of just running a business and mm-hmm. some of those things but uh I'd say that, you know, doing traditional kind of early stage investing is really more about pattern recognition of, you know, an entrepreneur and a big idea and a marketplace. And most of the things, as we talked about in class, fail. So you know that you're taking some big bets. You need these things to win very big, not modestly perform in order to make back the losses and have a nice upside. So you're you're shooting for the you know the stars here with these things, and that was a big change to go from Constellation was a little more kind of traditional extension of what I knew, some cable networks, some subscription businesses, but Spark was much more of the kind of you know what you think about when you think about traditional VCs, which is let's go early, twenty five year old entrepreneur wants to change the world, you know, has come out of an interesting situation, demonstrated some grit and, and abilities and, and, you know, and kind of the, the DNA to make it through all the tough times. And that was, that's really where some of the biggest wins have come from. Right. 
and Sparks got this great track record, Twitter, Oculus, Tumblr. Uh, did you work on, on those deals? Um, well, it's a partnership, so we all have to you know weigh in on all of those. Um, the deal, uh, Twitter and Tumblr, where both Bijan Sabat brought both of those companies. I introduced you know Bijan to the guy behind Tumblr, but he was really the lead and got us there and was the advocate for that. Uh, Twitter, I was still shaking my head about a messaging service that would allow people to voyeuristically follow other people out there. That that was a big concept, which uh, we've all seen now has become Donald Trump's primary, uh, you know, uh, public mm-hmm. relations tool for better or for worse. It would have never thought, you know, what role it would have played in the last election, but it, it's significant. Big one. Big one. And uh, no, I worked on more on an, on an ad tech company called Adapt TV that was uh, early in the programmatic advertising business where buyers and sellers come to an exchange. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were we backed the gentleman who was the CTO at Shopping.com, Amir Ashkenazi, and then we ended up selling it to AOL for about 400 and plus million dollars. And we had gotten in early in that company, so it was a very nice win. We also did a company called AdMeld, which was uh, another exchange for display advertising. Uh, and that we sold to Google for about the same amount. And uh, Oculus Rift happened after I had just left. We're still a venture partner there, but that was Santo Politi, who you know found that gentleman down in Irvine, who became kind of the leader of you know the first first mover in the VR space there. Sure. So, what about this company that was like an early creator of online video? Uh, Next New Networks, you know, was was mine, and those were guys that I knew from my former life. A very talented, creative group. Fred Seibert, who'd been the kind of leading creative person behind the Cartoon Network and a brilliant marketeer, Herb Scannell, who'd run Nickelodeon, and then a cast of characters we filled it out with, and we, along with Goldman Sachs and uh, a couple of other kind of uh, significant angels, put the money in. We were early in the MCN space. There wasn't a lot of advertising support. YouTube was just coming on, but we thought a new form of digital content would take off, and we wanted to have a bet in that space and we were early we ended up making our money back by selling the company back to google but we were probably two and a half years behind where maker was which we were headed in that direction and we were the fastest growing and google saw that and said hey i want those people to be ambassadors here but ultimately um uh timing is everything in the vc business so um we didn't get the win that we had hoped for right so uh, then what? You made so much money that you didn't have to work anymore? Uh, no, I was. I my father passed about six years ago. My family's all out of here. I have three sisters and uh, fourteen nieces and nephews, and a couple young kids. And my wife was from Philadelphia, and uh, we had you know basically we had done very nicely, which I was you know like that was a great thing to know financially. You're set for the rest of your life. Um, but I moved back here to help with a bunch of family stuff because my dad had left some litigation and some some messy situations here, and uh, and all the family was busy in various family rearing pursuits here. So I came back here to help the family. Stayed on as a venture partner with Spark for another couple of years, and then ultimately, um, being a satellite individual when the main office is in Boston and Monday morning you're discussing everything is not optimal in any sense because you're not there and digging up those companies and my interests had kind of moved to somewhat later stage companies I also got interested in some of the real estate stuff that the family was doing and so I stayed here we moved to Palisades which is pretty good living mm-hmm. uh, I liked Boston a lot too but I preferred the weather <laughs> out here 
and had a lot of friends out here from my media days. And that's how it kind of led me to back into the media space with people, as we talked about earlier, like Harry Sloan and Jeff Sagansky. We you know, raised a couple of SPACs that we've used to go out and buy single assets out there. I've joined a few public boards, you know, since that time and a few not-for-profit uh, endeavors here, but uh, no, I'm sure. back here. So you have that fund you were just trying, looking at buying Playboy, I think it was talked about in... Uh... Well, there's a fund called Double Eagle that I'm on the board of, and they've been rumored to be out there um, looking at licensing companies, and Playboy is one of the licensing companies because Playboy sold all of the traditional assets and now just licenses its moniker, in, principally in Asia, which does very well, but... Uh, no, I wouldn't have, wouldn't have pursued Playboy by itself as a, uh, as a uh, opportunity for the SPAC, but it's one of a number of assets that they're looking at. Right. And so now you're on these boards, and you're also on some boards of some not-for-profits, some charitable giving things. So that's kind of what I want to end up talking about is the concept of doing well by doing good uh, and giving back and getting involved. I think that's super important in life. I mean, I hear like, Teachers, this is probably, I'd like to hear, you know, your idea for teaching is that I hear teachers are some of the most happy people, maybe not the richest people, but the idea that you can help others and give back. And so I'd love to hear about that part of your life now. Yeah, I was looking for, uh, you know, some things to do. And I'd always uh, had liked kids, always, you know, grew up in a big family, had an interest in, in them, particularly at kind of young ages. And came across an opportunity with Green Dot, which manages uh, 21 schools here in in the in California, I think 19 in California, and then one in Memphis and one in Washington right now, just spreading out beyond California. But they were doing, you know, exceptional work, taking very difficult situations where there was underperformance, kids aren't getting into college, language barriers, kids coming in way behind grade levels and bringing resources and skills to those situations to get these kids ready for college. Um, it was run by a gentleman I knew, Marshall Tuck, who I had a lot of respect for, and then run by a, a gentleman named Marco Petruzzi, who I also liked quite a bit, who was came out of Bain, was very analytical, very data-oriented. And they are, uh, they've really, you know, demonstrated the ability on public funding dollars to be able to accomplish, you know, very significant uh, improvements. And in, with all of the troubled schools here in LA. I thought that was a good place to put some, some of my time and effort. So I joined their board, been on there for almost three years now. Also joined a board doing some work of getting more science and engineering and math professors into public schools here called Encore STEM that Sherry Lansing started. And uh, I think it's, you know, terribly important that, you know, that we all know that we get, we're blessed with how we come into this world, uh, the randomness of zip code, you know, arrivals here. And if you have been blessed as I have to uh, where I was born, the family I had to the career I've had, then you can't not look around and see a lot of the uh, inequity you know that exists in the world. And nice thing is, is ventures gives you some good tools, I think, to look at, do the analysis on which charities and which not-for-profits are really delivering a return. You really become more data specific. You look at the CEOs differently. And I've left a few just because I felt like they didn't really couldn't really sustain their model, um, you know, as as currently configured. But uh, I went through a process just like looking at a company to invest in and said, these are the two I'd like to put my you know time into. And um, that's how I got there. And I, the school teaching thing, Harry Sloan and Jeff Sagansky, two media entrepreneurs who I'd worked with in the past, where Jeff, uh, Harry was teaching at UCLA. I came in and guested for some of their finals that they had and liked the experience, liked the Anderson School. And 
uh, Sanjay Sud said, hey, would you be interested in teaching a class? We've done entrepreneurship. We haven't done venture specifically and from the inside perspective. And that sounded intriguing. So that's what led me to uh, this recent class. That's great. And so what would you say that ex- excites you now? What are you what are you most interested in doing? You know, I'd say, you know, a couple of things. I do education. Uh, I have a lot of interest in it. It's a very daunting arena. There's been a lot of thought and a lot of money and a lot of uh, underperformance that's, you know, happened in the arena. It has a political challenge with the unions and with the monopoly that the public education has had in terms of doing one thing one way for a long time. That makes it really uh, tough. You know, it's very tough sledding to get the kind of changes that you'd like to see. Um, when you see the, you know, business world and you see, you know, the global world moving so much quicker than the educational landscape here, then you know that disconnect is going to ultimately and is, is leading us to, you know, significant problems out there. So I think bringing some of the tools I gained from doing being an investor into that education world interests me quite a bit. I've got young kids, so they take up a chunk of time um, who are avid soccer players and uh, and I'm enjoying that because I waited a long time to have these kids. So I'm um, making sure I spend, you know, the requisite time and that's thoroughly enjoyable. And then I just, uh, I only do like one or two deals a year. I look at a lot of things. I try to stay out of venture because I'm humble enough to know that even with really smart people, you get most of them wrong. And if you're not part of a firm, you tend to get a lot of adverse selection. You know, if people get to me to put money into something, I'm often like, what went wrong? Why, why, what did the other 60 institutions say no that have much better diligence and information and they're, they're in the space, you know, at any one time versus just standing back and saying, oh, this deal came to me. So I'm pretty, uh, you know, uh, prudent about, you know, putting money to work. And I also venture is a very high risk game. So at this juncture in life, uh, reducing that risk profile is is part of the game plan. So I tend to look at things that are a little later stage that have EBITDA metrics, things that you know are unlikely to go to zero, may not have the same upside that a Twitter does, but uh, are a little better from where I'm at in my life. Sure. And the charter school effort, I think it's very interesting. That's what Eli Broad and Bill Gates, it's the same kind of concept of improving education. So how do people my age get involved in something like this? We're not sitting on a board. Is it through time? Is it through, I mean, what, how would you uh, recommend MBAs getting involved? Because I, I think it's, like you said, it's tremendously important. I think it's very easy in ways to, you know, we're all so connected these days to go and audit some of these companies here. You can spend day, you know, at the at the schools themselves. Green Dot has that program where you can go to Watts, you can go to Jordan High School, you can go to Inglewood and actually watch the teachers and the principal and the social workers and the team and what they do and you get a taste of does this feel interesting good or am i scared or is this boring or you know whatever your natural reaction is i find linkedin to be incredibly helpful you know and when i want to connect with people i don't know um, so I have my information there and I use that all the time. I just went up to see some robot creators in Oakland a couple of weeks ago. We we're doing, creating these like UFC fights for huge robots and it intrigued me. And I reached out to the guy on LinkedIn and next day he was back to me and we saw, I saw him a week later and I said, what else could you do that other than this connected world here? But on the not-for-profit side, I think there's a lot of them. I think not all are particularly well-run. A lot of them use up a lot of their uh, invested capital in ways that I think don't necessarily benefit the cause here. 
But I think you can audit these places. I think, you know, everyone, uh, you see an area that you're interested in, whether it's water in Africa or education or malaria or inner city stuff, or there are so many uh, worthy causes. And I think that uh, my approach has just been like finding an area to invest in. I go and see who are the six people doing interesting things. I know somebody I know is connected to one of them, either three degrees away or one degree, get up, get to them. I find that people doing this, some of the best work in philanthropy are very quick to respond. And, uh, and unlike sometimes in the business world, you're coming from a good place as opposed to, oh, you just wanna you know, get the best deal you can by investing in me here. So you start off at a nice place and then you meet people you'd never meet otherwise just from, uh, from these not-for-profits who are doing a lot of amazing things. And it's very, uh, very inspirational. Right. So I think that's an important lesson and we'll leave it there. So Dennis, it was really fun speaking with you. Thanks for stopping by. I'm Alex Grodnick and you've been listening to the Wall Street Oasis podcast. We have much more coming, so please stay with us. Also, I just wanted to mention the investment banking guides at Wall Street Oasis. Their guides are far and away better than anything else you can buy. When I was trying to get into investment banking, they played a huge part for me. They're so confident that it will help you succeed that if you buy a guide and for whatever reason you don't like it, they'll give you your money back. So go on to Wall Street Oasis, click IB Interview Guide, and when you buy it, make sure you select Podcast is where you heard about it.